three, two, one. Hello and welcome to episode 102 of the Agency Podcast. You're laughing, Candy. I know, I can't believe it. And I love it that we're calling it because we never did this before, but... Uh... Well, you know, innovation, innovation, innovation. Yeah. And that's good. I mean, and you know, I'm interested in numbers, so that's kind of fun. That's right. Is 102 special in any way? Um, All numbers are special. Um, okay. I can't think off the top of my head what, what it brings to mind. 108 is extremely significant in uh, Buddhism and Japanese culture. There's 108 moves in Tai Chi, right? Uh, in some forms, yeah. In some forms, yeah. So, um, you know, some numbers. And that ha- all has to do with time factoring and um, stupas and all that fun stuff. <laughs> you know, How was your day? You know, this reminds me. Oh, by the way, it's uh, it's Eugene here in Toronto. Oh, yeah, right. It's Candy here in Chicago. And you know what I did just while I was running around making tea was I chopped up half a pear, threw in a couple cups of blueberries, some white wine, and celery and onions and chicken and herbs. And it's in the crock pot right now as we speak. This is because you are jealous. Because <laughs> I sent you a picture of, of homemade street mango. Yeah, I was pretty freaked out by that. That looks good. It means that when I get there next week or whenever it is, that we're going to have some mango snacks. And you've already got the tahini. That's how do you right. say I, tajine, tajine? I have no idea how you're supposed to say it. All I know is you put that stuff in a little fresh lime juice on a mango yeah. and um, and you see God. You do see God. And it's tajine, I think, is how you say it. I should know. I live in Pilsen and I use it all the time. And, um, you know, I'll screech to a stop when I see a little food cart that's got the mango. <laughs> it doesn't so matter. Good. It's, it's especially so good. good from a cart. It, it is especially good from a cart, but it sounds like you've mastered the technique. It's once you've got the goods. The, I hope the you've magic, got salt. Oh yeah, you're gonna, have, you're gonna have salt on there too. Once you have the the magic uh, Mexican powder, <laughs> I know. Uh, it, you know it just uh, it opens up worlds. Yes, it does, and we're not talking about uh, peyote or mushrooms or anything like or that. Or anything like that. Yeah. We're yeah. just talking about whatever stuff they put in their <laughs> lime chili. Damn, condiment. damn, it's good. It is so good. Yeah, so I did throw some food on. I. I better crock pot it up today. I was going to get Stay to do it with a list of instructions, but we've both been so busy and coming in and out. He's working. Hard Rock is busy. The city is open. It's going crazy over here. We're opening up here too. Oh and my God. Uh, the patios have been very busy. People I are, bet. Are really, a lot of people who like to go out are really happy to be able to go out, <laughs> yes. even if it's just to go have a beer on a patio. So even if I, I haven't that's done a such lot. a thing, uh, you know, because I don't normally do that anyway. Well, I think, we're gonna, I think we're going to probably do that when I'm in town, if I can get across the border. Uh, you get As across we say, the border, I will buy you a beer. And we'll see Dr. K. We'll have to do that. We will buy Dr. K a beer. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's right. I like that idea. <sighs> yeah, I do too. And uh, universes will cross. Uh, streams will be put together. Oh, so you're, yeah. you're mentioning uh, the significance of numbers. Yeah. And it reminded me of this really wonderful woman I used to work with uh, years ago. She worked for a consulting firm um, and they were hired by the company I was working for uh, to uh, help implement uh, a great big, huge, unwieldy software project. And oh. somehow I got involved with doing this. <laughs> Why? Because I knew nothing about it. Yeah. And that sounds I, good. And so my idea was I made friends with her <laughs> so some, I could get someone to teach me. And at right. first she would just say, just give it to me. I'll just do it. 
she's so cranky <laughs> about it because yeah. I was always bugging her about like, how do you do this? How do you do that? So finally I said, listen, you take half a day, you teach me this stuff. I'll never have to ask you again. Wow. So she taught me all that stuff and I learned to do it. It was amazing. Oh, cool. Now, years so later, years later, I came across a, a, a memo <laughs> I wrote to my boss, an email. Uh, for some reason I had printed it out. Um, I was Warriors. asking, I, I was, I wanted to change some user exit in the system. And I, I sent him this email. And when I read it, like 10 years later, it was like all this technical gibberish. I had no idea what the <laughs> hell I was talking about. But at the time, at the time I knew. And it's like, oh yeah, this is going to be such a good solution. Yeah, it's like reading one of my papers. It also sounds like you're stalking somebody when you're looking at old emails like that. Well, you know, I think it was when we were moving to here that I came across it going through old shit. And right. for some reason, I think I had saved it at the at the time because I was waiting for a response of whether we could go ahead with this work. Um, and I guess I just never threw it away until we moved. Yeah, funny. So anyway, that's yeah. All this is I just is just digression because yeah, that's what okay. I was gonna say is that is that this woman bought <laughs> a house in a new subdivision. Okay. Okay. Oh, are we going back to our first episode about the addresses? Did did we talk about this in our first episode? Uh, she bought Not a house and, they, and they, they numbered it number four. Yes. Oh my That's god. That's how we started our first episode. Did was the number really? four, which in some languages is the translated into death. Oh, it was horrible. And then when she finally wanted to move, she couldn't sell her house. Right. Because no one wanted to buy number yep. four. Oh in my a, god. In an all Chinese neighborhood. Right. Well, we're right back to episode one. So that's pretty funny. Thank you for mentioning that because, you know, I would tell this story seven, eight times without ever realizing it. Now, let somebody else go back and listen. Yeah. It, it reminds it reminds me of our friend Scott, who, when I repeat a story, he just holds his hand up. He doesn't oh, say anything. He just holds his hand up. Wow. We should, have, we should have numbers. Like, this is story 46. <laughs> this is story 49. This is... <laughs> We're back to this. Hey, we but all do I, it. I we let him tell his stories over again because I know it feels good right. to right. tell a good story. Yeah, it does feel good to tell a good story. And sometimes you want to hear that story again. You do want to live it again or and you need that person or somebody else is in the room. Um, I, list, I, watched, um, I watched that video you recommended. Oh, the master class? Correct. Yes, I went down this 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 music teaching rabbit hole and <laughs> and i was increasingly fascinated with it and so i sent the link over to uh to candy so she would get a taste of this too yeah. and i'm sure we'll hear what you think about it shortly but yeah. it was it was um a master class led by a fellow named benjamin zander and benjamin zander is the uh conductor of the boston uh, philharmonic youth orchestra and he teaches these kids who are already better musicians than most musicians you know are ever going to be. And they're yes. like 16, 17, <laughs> I don't know. But yeah. they're awesome musicians. And he does these master classes in which they play. And he starts off by telling them how fantastic they are and how they're really, you know, like the first guy, he says, like 20 years ago, there was nobody who could play the double bass with the kind of skill that you have. Like he really lifted him up. Yes, yes. Then, then he started <laughs> doing the work. Yes. 
and he had him he's standing in different ways and <sighs> looking up at the sky and trying to, to be like a singer while he's playing the the bass um and he jumps on the piano he, he there the guy has an accompanist but Xander just jumps right out of the piano bench. The <laughs> company just gets out of the way. Mm-hmm, He's mm-hmm. so passionate. Yes. Um, and he gets excited about things like there'll be two notes and he'll go, that interval, listen to that interval. Oh my God, that <laughs> interval is so fantastic. And you start getting excited about these two crazy notes, right? Yeah. At one point, and first of all, I should back this up by saying, yeah. okay it's it's academic it's for privileged elite students it's like a ted talk it's like a ted talk um it's in a world in which study and practice and mentorship in a formal setting is important yes and it's the classical music world and he's yes. dealing with people who are at the top of their game these kids are going to be the best musicians technically in on the planet probably okay right? They're, they're really hot stuff. And he's tried to guide them through ways to, to feel the music, which is yes. very, very interesting. Yes. And he, he talks, like on, on the one hand, he always, he has a, a, another video that he has in various incarnations called Give Them an A, uh-huh. um, in which it, he talks about it in, in his classes on the very first day. He said, I just want to let you guys know, um, I've got your grades for the year. And uh-huh. I'm giving you all an A. <laughs> um, all you have to do is today, I want you to write me a letter and date it for the last day of the year to mm-hmm. tell me why I gave you an A. Wow. And everyone that. would write their letter and he would give yep. them an A. And yeah. what an interesting approach to teaching. Yes. Because yeah. we, you know, we went through a school system in which you had, you have to grade everybody and this person is the best and this person is the worst and you're in that kind of murky middle and everybody is everybody is chopped up and graded that way and instead he thinks of grades as an opportunity to grow into yes i I had experience with that too with some teachers to be honest with you, yeah. but I didn't have the exact kind of education as you. I had a liberal left-wing education <laughs> out in the West Coast. Very different, very different than what happened ah. in Toronto. Okay. Um, because, uh, you know, there was a, mine was a lot more like that guy. <coughs> and really? um, wow. my impression, cool. my impression was it took me right back to art class and um, to uh, critiques. When you walk around, everyone's at York University, and when you're in painting class, it was the approach was a classical training. I have no idea if it's still done this way because art teaching has changed a lot since we were in yes. school, and um, I I don't believe that uh, kids are even painting at school, let alone oil painting. I don't know, and you know, I'm not even sure if I learned anything from the critiques in that milieu. Well, you may not have, but a lot of us did because for me, I w- it was cringeworthy wa- watching him talk to the kids. Not because it was horrible; it just triggered so many feelings of feeling compassion for other him, people him in being class. A particular professor. Yes, in in the video. Sorry, the video oh, that oh, you recommended oh, in, the, in the video oh, in the I master see. class oh, on okay. of Harvard musicians and his tweaking them is that um, in critiques. I mean, people would cry 
people were nervous. It's very difficult um, for a lot of people to go into that environment. If whatever age you go into that, can you imagine doing that right now? And and going in there and having someone critique your paintings right now like well, that. Well, of course, that, that's why I'm thinking about it because for the first time in a long time, I'm a student. Yeah. I, I have a fiddle teacher yes. now. Yes. And once a week, uh, I get together with my fiddle teacher by FaceTime for an right. hour. Uh -huh. And it's a really interesting way of learning as well in that I sort of have a plan, the kinds of things I want to learn. She sort of has a plan how she's going to go about teaching me. Mm -hmm. But she wants to teach me by teaching me tunes that I really want to play, which is super smart. Because right. if you want to play the tune, you're going you're gonna to learn. The other right. thing is how I discovered, I rediscovered, I haven't had a teacher in music in many, many, many years. Yeah. Um, that having a teacher and meeting once a week really inspires tremendous discipline for me. Good. Excellent. Like I put in a lot of effort, but as a yeah. teacher, uh, she puts in a lot of effort too. My teacher is uh, Cindy Thompson, by the way. Okay. She's a, an Ottawa Valley a fiddle player. She's well-known. Um, she's a great player. Um, she'll also send me sound files and sheet music. Um, sometimes the sound files she'll record during the lesson. It might be a slowed down version of a tune. Right. Right. Um, but she also sent me last week, um, I had asked uh, about the difference between Irish fiddle playing and Ottawa Valley fiddle playing. Right. So she used a tune we were, uh, we were, I was learning in order to say, okay, if you want to play it more Ottawa Valley, play it like this. But if you <laughs> okay. want to Irish it up a little bit, you could do this and this and this. That's pretty and, cool. And she played the examples. So it's, for me, it's fantastic because now when I'm listening, I could say, okay, this is very much the kind of Irish session style. This is the, uh, the, the Ottawa Valley styles for square dances and step dances, that kind of right, thing. Right. And it really helps me get a, a sense of, um, of the way the tune is being played. Right. Um, with Ben Zander, there are a couple of things that he said in the videos, and, and I watched two or three of them, yeah, and yeah. some of his other videos as well. Um, and he also has done work for uh, business people. I'm sure he has, because what I want to interject here is it has a lot more to do with how you want to live your life Yes. than how you play music. And the two are connected. And yes. these are very young people, and 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 um, my cringeworthy was because he kept interrupting the, the plane. I understand why he's doing it, but it was triggering memories of being in art critiques. Now, the thing is, doing stuff like that can actually build an awful lot of confidence by being talked to yes. in that manner. And um, I was And there lucky. also has to be a tremendous trust relationship. I guess so. I think, though, the, the situation is, and I don't know if anyone's talking about it. I don't know how they talked about it before they went into that situation. I The, the fellow that was first with the, the huge cello, he seemed completely unaware that that was what was going to happen. Or maybe he just didn't know how it was going to feel. He was a oh, very good sport, yeah, though. I, I think for sure, I think they all know exactly what's going down at those. Okay. 
Like, so I that, guess my in one of the other videos, he said, he said, this is the way at this level, this is the way the format in which learning is done. Sure. Well, and I would call that classical training, which is what brings me back to art school and theater, because I studied theory, theater and I did improv for years. So at some point, I was lucky in art. I was lucky in those classes and, and, and in, um, in, in theater because I happened to be um, a student and making work that the teachers usually did not. They were I, I worked pretty hard and I had some experience behind me and I didn't have many bad critiques, to be honest with you. And I realized I was pretty lucky. It was cringeworthy when other people were having their feelings hurt. And the thing is, is yes. that if you're learning to not have your feelings hurt. You're learning to talk about something that you, sorry to ramble on here, but I want to get this off of my head, uh, is that it's one thing when you create something to be able to be willing to have someone tell you what they think and feel about it. It takes, it builds character to be able to do that. Oh yes, it's very difficult. Yes, but it, it shouldn't be. And the thing is, I'm not sure if parents, because part of me was like, oh my God, I wish his parents had taught him stuff like that. But I'm not sure if parents are the ones that are able to teach that because we're too involved in our children and in, in our families. It does take the wisdom of someone like a teacher or in your neighborhood to help impart that kind of wisdom because it is about how do you want to live. And the other thing he kept, he did say some pretty interesting things. I wrote down a few things because he said, you're actually, it's not a musical instrument you're playing, you're singing. So his opinion is that when you play guitar or bass or piano, that's your voice. So you want to yes. put your body straight he, into it and distribute also, that. He also says at one point that he thinks if you're going to learn an instrument, you also should be learning to sing and to dance. I totally agree because that is the well-rounded classical provincial education in any community, whether it is in Peruvian, India, England, or United States, is that we aren't doing that kind of, you know, there's art cutbacks. Every student, no matter what they're studying, should take, take art and music. Everyone should. And by should, I don't mean forced, I mean passionately, whether it's through your family or through the schools, because those things all affect your mind. He said something, think of yourself as a musician, of which I pretty much laughed out loud, because the musician, he had to tell them, remember, you're a musician. Yes. Um, and it reminded me, you know, uh, as from a young age, I always, I always was, I always presented, and I was always recognized as being an artist and a poet and philosopher. It was never a surprise to anyone. When we have a cable guy come to our house, they always stop, look around and go, are you all artists here? <laughs> it's like very evident in the clothing yes, and the way so. you hold yourself and the way you talk about the world. Yeah. And those kids are really learning that culture. Yes. Yes, they are. Um, and he's, well, he is being difficult with them in some ways because he's trying to change how they're looking at the world. Yes. And it's, that's really hard, but he's yes. doing, he's coming from a place of, complete fascination and love of music. Sure. Um, at, and at one point, I don't know if it's in the video that you watched or if it was in a different one. He says to this kid, do you feel it? <laughs> yeah. You feel it? I saw that. That's the, that's the, um, that's the pulse of the cosmos. You're beginning yes. to release it. Yes. It's still going. Do you hear it? Yeah. And it's like, that's just mind blowing. 
yeah, well, it's an art too. I'm hoping that while we're painting, we're feeling the pulse of the cosmos. That's what it's all about. Yes, but I mean, the kid, that kid probably never thought right. in those terms. Right, because that's what we're looking at. And we're looking at someone, really the hero of the whole thing were the musicians because they were allowed themselves to be vulnerable on camera because really those kinds of conversations are usually taking place in, in very protected, safe environments where everyone, you like you said, trust, is that they know that they're not being filmed. You're, you know, if you go to art school or theater school, and, you know, I spent two hours talking to a, an actor friend of mine last night on the phone around midnight. We, we talked for two hours. And it's a conversation that you don't have. It's a technical conversation you don't often have with other people. And the practice of studying theater gives you that ability to be able to talk about the nature of reality because that's your business. And the same with making art, the same with making music. This does not, the nature of reality falls under the domain. The experts are actually poets and artists. They're not the scientists. The scientists are grappling to figure out how to catch up to us. They don't have a clue how the universe works. We talk about it and record it all the time. Poetry, yes. uh, poetry and literature have recorded all the history of the world and how the, how the universe began. And the scientists, I love them. They're so adorable. They're, they're scrambling to figure it out. So I like the Harvard thing and, and it's very academic and it's a very different way. Instead of having um, an awakening with a shaman, this guy was like their shaman. And, you know, I wonder what they're going to be like next week. Are they going to go to the pub and talk about it with their friends? They were almost too young to be doing that. And um, some families and some people have that gift of understanding that we are all instruments. Our whole body and our mind are instruments that we're playing. And so every day could be a fun performance. Yes. Some some of his advice is, is I think, really obvious in a way, but he he it's fresh because he comes across it from perspectives that are, are maybe unexpected. Like True. he talks about telling um, telling students to become a one buttock player. <laughs> like what a peculiar thing to, to yeah, say I've, until he, he starts did... to demonstrate how he wants to, to play. So you can't sit still at that piano bench. Right. I, I think I've seen that in a TED talk, actually, him doing that. That's a famous uh, TED talk or video, the one buttock play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, he's so, extremely charming yeah, and go ahead. Yeah, very compelling. Um, but it, it had me thinking of other ways of learning music in particular. Okay. Now, obviously I've had one in the past. I learn Helter Skelter by myself. Now I'm learning mm -hmm. with a teacher and man, that's really accelerated. Wow. In, in, the, in the past, I've also done music camps. And in the music camp, it's like one great big intensive three or four day and night hit where yeah. you just get this blast of music and then you spend the, the next eight months figuring out what you learned. Yes. So that, that's another way. Uh, another way I could think of um, in, in old time music and the late 70s and 80s, there was kind of a revival of old time music. And a lot of younger players uh, gravitated to uh, a little county in, um, in North Carolina, um, where, which is what where um, in Mount Airy, where, where uh, Mayberry was based. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, there was a little community there called Toast. And there was a guy there named Tommy Gerald, lived with his wife. 
And word got around among young players around North America that this old guy is, as a fiddler and banjo player, the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> and so they gravitated to his house. Right. Yeah, just, you did mention this before just too. Knocked on his door and yeah. they'd set up a, a tent in his backyard. <laughs> he'd feed them, give them That's booze, funny. and play fiddle with them. I love it. Remarkable. Um, I remember hearing an, an interview quite a number of years ago, but it was a great interview uh, with James Cotton, late James Cotton, the, the harmonica <laughs> player. Um, when <clears throat> when he was a kid, um, he uh, he would sometimes play as they were sharecroppers. And uh, his uncle had a, a, a harmonica and he would play his uncle's harmonica and his uncle realized, oh, he's pretty good. He's playing the stuff he's hearing on the radio. Right. So he took him into... West Memphis to meet Sonny Boy Williamson and gave Sonny Boy money every month to look after <laughs> right. James Cotton. And basically he was like his apprentice. Mm -hmm. But James mm -hmm. Cotton said, like he never he never taught me nothing, but he taught me everything, you know. Yeah, like yeah. he never said play it like this. Right. Right. But he taught by showing him, taught by doing. Right. And when James Cotton was 15, Sunny Boy took off somewhere and basically gave him his band. Sure. So he had That's this cool. band of mature players in uh, in West Memphis and Memphis um, wasn't going to last. This 15-year-old kid wasn't going to lead them. Okay. Um, but as a player, um, you know, he he was he able some... to, to, you know, to to learn so much in that situation. Right. Well, it's funny, you know, um, Old Town School has a, a, an attitude of like, you don't, it's really not recommended to take private lessons with them because the whole point is to play with other people, not to sit there and play by yourself. So you go right into, it's very, you can get private lessons and usually it's somebody who's um, actually had more time or possibly very shy and they're, they're horrified at a, at a group thing, but they really do try to talk you into um, going into a group setting and you ride, you you go. The group will travel together through more experienced classes, right? Week by week by week, um, you'll have a session for a few weeks. But you start playing day one in those classes. It doesn't matter if you've never played before. You start playing right then and there. If you just bought your guitar yesterday or your mandolin, and um, you definitely go home with two chords that you can practice for that week, right? Mm -hmm. And you come back and you're you know you're sore, um, and. You know, that also, the video with um, Xander also reminded me of um, vocal classes. To be singing in front of total strangers and then be critiqued, and that's your first day. Singing something you don't even know and you didn't even know you could do. And then the uh, professor absolutely analyzes everything you do from the way you stand, the way you move, the way you think. It's, it's, it's pretty intense. And a lot of people don't have to do that in their works when they're working. Many people just go to the office and it would be completely unacceptable to approach each other in that way. Mm -hmm. You might have a special workshop, right, where you build team, team bonding or something. But if you're if your boss ever put you in front of everybody and took you apart like that, you'd probably sue the company. Um, and it's just such a different thing because in the arts, well, yeah, it's because it's part of the contract. You're there because you want the wisdom of this of this guy, this teacher, right? And remember that his job as a teacher, he's also a conductor. 
um, which is quite interesting because a conductor is somebody who never gets to play anything. So if he has any power in the orchestra, it's only through his ability to, to inspire others to play magically. Sure, sure. Uh, I guess I'm looking at this in a broader cultural role is that if you look at the workplace and he was in the workplace, Harvard Music School, that's a workplace. It's gonna be an orchestra that's still work, that's still their office, is that the skills that you learn about social communication are so valuable that it would be beneficial for programmers, office people to have been exposed to this and, and, and have that kind of way of communicating because there's something else happening about human relationships when you're communicating. And he kept going to the audience and evaluating how they were responding throughout the That's right, that's right. At one, one point he said to, to one of the students, it's like, stop worrying about that audition. Look at, look at her smile. That's right. what you're doing. That's what you're playing for. Right. That's so, you made her smile like that. Yeah. So I'm suggesting that this is actually very more akin to practicing a spiritual practice and an ethical practice. That's what art and literature is. In many, many ways, you're examining humanity and life. And it, it's so important to have that um, skill. You're learning a skill on doing that. And it gives you infinite confidence. You'll never be afraid to, um, after art school critiques, I couldn't possibly be afraid of, of being analyzed in public. In fact, I would probably be, you know, or public speaking or anything. You just, you're not gonna be afraid to show your artwork. You're not gonna be afraid to have an art show. I mean, you might be afraid, what if they think I'm stupid? I, I suppose that would be something you'd have to personally deal with. But the only place that you really can have such a positive um, analysis like that is in the critiques, classical critique. Yes. Now, now, some people will find a mentor outside of a formal education. Um, musically happens all the time, I think. People, yeah. people find mentors, people find people whom they learn from, um, whether it's a musician that they meet or whether it's a piece of music that inspired them to learn. Um, and the other thing that's interesting is no matter how good the teacher is, if you don't put in the work, it doesn't matter. Well, sure. But that's about the passion again. I, I agree with you. That's the passion. The, the other, I, I, I'm still thinking of this kind of broader um, attitude that you don't have to be a Harvard, Boston, uh, you know, musician to get some of the message of this. What, we're, of what you're watching is that you're watching that we're raising children to be afraid of their bodies and they're not in communication with their own bodies. These kids didn't have a clue what he meant half the time about the expression on their face and the freedom to be theatrical. And, and not theatrical like a camp. I don't mean that. Um, we're raising our society, the totalitarian society that we live in, is afraid of mystery and afraid of the body. So there's no wonder that it would be so beneficial to have a mentor like this come in and say, That's right. because your these, music's going to be better when you these are- These kids studied in a very, had a very technical musical education to that point. And now they're being exposed to someone who's challenging the technical part. The technical part is to a guy like Ben Zander, the technical aspect is table stakes. Well, it's, it's the same for me. I feel the same way about painting and, and art and movies. The technical part is the least interesting part about it. It is the, um, 
the process of communicating, finding the mystery. And um, that we're raising children that even are so already at 16 and 17 weren't aware of this. I That's the part that really bothered me was it just showed up how sad it is that they've been studying music all this time. And this is the first time that somebody yeah. talked to them about expressing art that way. And it really ought to be happening at a in younger one, in age. One of his videos, Xander says that, that when he has a class, a music class, how he knows he's being successful is he looks around and he sees shining eyes. And yeah. then he says in the same video, he said, and sometimes I think of parents and children. And I think if there's a child whose eyes aren't shining, if my child's eyes aren't shining, I have to ask myself, what have I been doing? Yeah. Right. Because clearly he sees that's the job. Right? <laughs> that's that's the job. Yeah. Well, I, it may not just be the parent. I, I guess you and I are looking at this so differently. I'm looking at it as a broader picture for me. The community is failing it. It's not the parents' failure. The parents aren't having shining eyes either because we live like shit. We live in a culture that doesn't promote us to be in tune with our bodies and, and appreciate mystery and art. So no wonder parents aren't able to, you know, listen, most kids are having a wonderful time. And I don't think it is the parents' failure at that to not recognize it because they may not have it either. It's really an extended, it's, it's embedded in the way that we make money and we make a living here. Well, it's sure. embedded in, it's for, in my opinion. And so I found it fascinating to look at that and see the filming of someone being woken up to looking at art in a different way and looking at expression in a different way. Uh, I, I I really enjoyed it. I, I know you thought I wouldn't but enjoy it, but I did enjoy it. Well, I like I thought I like you wouldn't, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have sent it. Yeah. I wasn't sure what you were going to think, but I thought, oh, yeah. you know, I think she's probably going to enjoy oh, it. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I recommend it to people because I think there's lots of life lessons. Now, it's from 2014. It looks like it's had some airplay, but I'd never seen that before. I do remember the one buttock plane. I didn't realize that was the guy that, that he was the same person. Yeah. Because it was probably a different era or different clothing or something. Yeah, no, it's um, yeah, there, really there's good. videos going back many years, and there's been fewer of them in the past few years because, well, he's 82 now, and I don't think yeah. he's as active as he was. Right. At one point, he was, as well as teaching music, he also had a, a gig in which he, he would do conferences, uh, business conferences, and he mm. would, he would have his piano and he would talk about classical mm -hmm. music and but he wasn't talking about classical music he was talking about how we communicate and how yeah. we yeah. how we find our way through the world yeah so um so we're going to recommend uh these videos if you go onto the youtube machine and you search ben zander z-a-n-d-e-r or benjamin zander you'll find a number of his videos the master classes are quite long some of those videos are about two hours and um they could be quite excruciating as you watch <laughs> some of these kids just really there's a couple of them who really are struggling you know and he'll say you're resisting yeah <laughs> uh, but uh there's also um uh videos about classical music and videos about uh that are more business focused Right as well, um, right. and they're all worth all worth watching. I think he's a really interesting guy. Definitely. Another thing he said, um, I just found what I'd written down was that again, speaking to the culture, he said the two of these people were playing at different tempos and they didn't even know it. 
because it was so technical, their training was so technical based without understanding the freedom of the body and that they are body artists playing music, you know, and he also quoted music is an act of anti-gravity. Yes. So those are two things I wrote down, which I thought were really fun. And it segues to something I watched this week. I w- and I would have sent it to you, but I, I kind of forgot I was, wa- I, I kind of forgot I even watched it. It was a documentary on Netflix that I can't think came out on June 1st. So it's pretty new. It's called The Edge of All We Know. And it's a, a film about trying to understand black holes. And now the black hole was in the news, what, a couple of years ago. I don't know. Do you remember that? It was all over Facebook. Um, some scientists managed to take a photo of a black hole. And so it was on the cover of every newspaper. It was all over Facebook. It was really, really super cool. This is a film about how they got that photo. Um, they basically, it's directed by Peter Gallison. And he's made three documentaries. One that I think we should check out, Eugene, called Secrecy. And that's about the cost benefits of governments being secretive. So wow. I think we should try and find that because it sounds really cool. Um, but basically this film is trying to find out what black holes can teach us about what we know. And it was super interesting because um, the way they took that photo was they had to have eight huge telescopes all around the world coordinate at the same time because you, there's no camera that could take a picture of a black hole at once because it's so big. So they had to have eight cameras and then piece it together. Does that make sense? Yeah. And what I thought was really funny about that was that that's step one where science again could not articulate it, they had to use art. And throughout the film, before they actually get this picture taken, because we know it's taken, it they know we know they're successful because it was it was a big news story a couple of years ago, was that they kept building models to talk about black holes. They had someone had a tank, and they put different colored waters with the whirlpools. They had people drawing them. They had people uh, making animation about a black hole. And I was like, there's another great example of how art already can articulate something that we can't verbalize. And um, one thing they did find out is um, since that movie came out, it's kind of cool because um, I was reading this article about, I I think this came out in the news a little while ago, that um, we used to think Stephen Hawking thought that when you go in a black hole, everything disappears. That's the kind of the common knowledge we've all come to understand about black holes. Um, Newton and Einstein thought that gravity, um, their notion of gravity is kind of still the classical notion of it. We still need it for a lot of things. Um, But recently, uh, a number of people have um, come up with this idea that, um, do you know what an information paradox is? No. Okay, information paradox, you know, I'm going to be pulling this out my ass because I'm paraphrasing. It's when um, scientists, certain scientists like theoretical physicists like Stephen Hawking and the filmmaker, they would say that if we know what something is happening today, we know what it was like in the past. And Stephen Hawking would say, we'll know what it's like in the future. We could, we could read the future from this. So something that an event that's happening now, we can trace it back reverse engineering, I guess, would be one term, and find out what happened in the past. The thing is, black holes suck up information. Um, You know, that old joke about spaghetti, that scientists call it like spaghettification, that if you and I went into a black hole, we'd be shredded into spaghetti. So that's not a very good outcome. But now, and then our information is completely, no, it's completely dissolved, right? Black holes, they just, the, the gravity is so powerful that nothing comes out. Well, now, there's an argument that 
in fact, gravity is containing information and it's all around the black hole. So theoretically, you could go into a black hole and come back out at a much later date. <laughs> that's me. That's my opinion. I think it would be a much further time period. I don't remember that being mentioned when you could come out um, because gravity is holding more and more information and it's being released and leaving the black hole in the field around a black hole, the older a black hole gets. So how fucked up is that? That means that maybe we could do some time travel or preserve ourselves like cryogenically inside a black hole. I don't want to do that, but maybe something could be preserved. If you there. did want to do it. Yes. Elon Musk is probably working on that. He probably is. Yeah, probably monetizing <laughs> that. Yeah. Hey, hey, I just want to go back for a second because you know, even while we're talking, we don't stop researching here. Oh yeah, on, that's on right. Are you researching in the background? Well, of course I am. Oh, um, and um, uh, I just, I, I recalled that, uh, that Ben Zender had written a book and it's called The Art of Possibility. And I'm going to put it into our, um, uh, put it into our, our book list. Oh. And, and in it, uh, they, I just found a little quote from it about rule number six. <laughs> and I'm just going to read that before okay. we move on. Um, it, it comes directly from his book. Uh, two prime ministers are sitting in a room discussing affairs of state. Suddenly a man bursts in, apoplectic with fury, shouting and stamping and banging his fist on the desk. The resident prime minister admonishes him. Peter, he says, kindly remember rule number six. Whereupon Peter is instantly restored to complete calm, apologizes and withdraws. <laughs> the politicians return their conversation only to be interrupted yet again, 20 minutes later by an hysterical woman gesticulating wildly, her hair flying. Again, the intruder is greeted with the words, Marie, please remember rule number six. Complete calm descends once more. And she too withdraws with a bow and an apology. When the scene is repeated for a third time, the visiting prime minister addresses his colleague. My dear friend, I've seen many things in my life, but never anything as remarkable as this. Would you be willing to share with me the secret of rule number six? Very simple, replies the, the resident prime minister. Rule number six is don't take yourself so goddamn seriously. <laughs> <laughs> ah, says his visitor. That's a fine rule. After a moment of pondering, he inquires, and what may I ask are the other rules? Oh, there aren't any. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> so that's carry on. Cool. Yeah, that reminds me of a lot of things. It reminds me of a doctor when I was a little depressed. And I hope I didn't tell the story before. But he, this ties into everything. He said, you know, Candy, an important lesson about life is that a, an awful large part of it is about acting. You just, you gotta, you gotta follow the manners, follow the protocol, act like it's okay. And you'll, you know, fake it till you make it basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, you know, I really see these topics together. I, I guess it's, you know, sometimes when you watch something and you watch it closely together, they really do blend. There was an awful lot of the black hole film that, that really came out when I was watching the Xander video. And it's just that disconnected thing because even the, um, the title of the film is The Edge of All We Know. And it really should say The Edge of All That Scientists Know. <laughs> because it's just so, it's so not true. We know all kinds of things. And Xander is totally proving that these kids do know they just need to be given the permission to be artsy. That's right. Yeah. That's and, right. Um, put it bluntly, yes. Yeah, to be artsy. The other thing that black holes give us is a scientific language about things 
we already know that the biggest thing is that Stephen Hawking and everybody, all the scientists freaked out, was that space-time is not the root of reality. And yet, again, art and theater and painting already knows that because they're time magicians. You know, they're, they're dealing with all of that stuff of the human um, experience, the human condition on Earth and life on Earth and painting about it and stuff. So I really recommend, though, The Edge of All We Know because it's a lot of fun. It's super geeky. And um, I've got something else here that might tie into a little bit of both of these topics too. Can I read something? Yes. Okay, it's from a book. I, uh, this is one of the first things I ever posted on my blog. Probably within the, the first month of, of blogging, I really wasn't sure what I was gonna do. Um, and it's a book I, I think I had read nearby then called Emergence, Chaos to Order by Holland. And near the end of the book, he writes this. When we look at the creative process, it's interesting to compare the two great P's of human intellectual endeavor, poetry and physics. Each produces deep insights into the world that surrounds us, but their disciplines seem very different. However, this dissimilarity makes even a brief comparison useful in enlarging our understanding of emergence and the creative process. Despite the differences, some of them deep, creative activities in poetry and physics have much in common. Both the poet and the physicist strive to get beneath the surface of events. The poet concentrating on the human condition, the physicist on the material world. Both depend on the guidelines and tools that come from tutoring, discipline, and experience working within forms and constraints suggested by their respective disciplines. For the poet, discipline supplies format, the sonnet, universal myths, the legend of Orpheus, and symbols, the rose. For the physicist, discipline supplies standard models, the billiard ball, universal laws, the conservation of energy, and mathematical formalism, different equations. For both, broken symmetries and rhythmic shapes signal possibilities and opportunities. For the poet, a broken rhyme invokes close attention and unusual interpretation. For the physicist, a lack of symmetry in an interaction suggests new particles. Intuition, taste, and leaps of faith based on experience are indispensable to the production of either a poem or a scientific theory. Even if one wants to break the canon, discipline plays a crucial role. Both poet and physicist subscribe to Bacon's aphorism. Truth comes out of error more readily than out of confusion. The differences in product are as instructive as the similarities in process. The poem aims at obliqueness and ambiguity to engage the reader at multiple levels. A scientific theory aims at elimination of ambiguity through a rigorous line moving from premises to conclusion by truth-preserving steps. The poet relies on the conventions of grammar to be to tie familiar elements into a framework to direct the reader to levels of meaning not obvious on the surface. The scientist relies on the conventions of logic and mathematics to tie observations into a framework that makes prediction possible. The generalizations provided by mathematical characterization direct the practitioner from specific observations to widely applicable laws. In a sense, the poetic framework is too loose, whereas the scientific framework is too tight. The looseness of the poetic framework limits the possibilities for collective structure. Though the discipline of poetry has evolved, particularly in the accumulation of technique, the insights remain much the same. Aristophanes plays hold, hold their own in the modern context. In scientific theory, the rigorous use of prior models as a source for newer, more encompassing models provides a regular succession. 
Kepler's insights have been succeeded and surpassed by Newton's insights, which in turn have been succeeded and surpassed by Einstein. And so it is likely to continue beyond the foreseeable future. Yet this very rigor restricts the scientist's ability to deal with the broad, ill-defined domains that are so much a part of human experience, domains characterized by words like beauty, justice, purpose, and meaning. The insights of poetry far surpass, surpass those of science in these domains. It is not impossible that poetry and physics can be brought into deeper conjunction. Hermann Hesse's Das Glaspenspiel is suggestive. Perhaps there is a game with the rigor of a CGP, um, that's generated program, permits insightful combinations of the powerful symbols of poetry. It is a vision that has held me since the days when I first read Hesse's masterpiece. So I love that. And it really ties into what um, Xander was doing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that music is also math, right? So although it's art and, and painting has math in it too. I mean, it depends on what you're doing and what you're seeking. So um, I recommend both of these things to um, our listeners, the Netflix documentary, The Edge of What We Know, and um, YouTube celebrity Bernard um, Xander. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Hey, have yeah. you uh, have you been watching the season four of Intrevent yet? No, no. Oh, I was going to try and cram it in this morning. I was really going to try and cram it in. I just didn't have time. I'm so tired. I had to. Everything I do seems like I'm moving through molasses. <laughs> like I can't. I'm like, okay, finish this project. I have six projects. I've got all these postcards. I've got a wedding gift painting I'm making. I've got another huge painting I'm making. And then I've got to sort out all the studio and I'm culling. Oh, listen, I'm going to cross the uh, cheese curtain tomorrow. Oh, really? What's, yeah, Stag and I are in, gonna, uh, in Wisconsin. Stag and I are going to go and we're going to do two things. One, we're going to see our friend Tricia and I'm taking a whole bunch of artwork to her that she can maybe give to her nieces and nephews for holidays and um, just redistribute it into the world if she doesn't want to own it. Sure. And then um, we're going to go out for dinner with her. And then I think on Wednesday, it's very hard for me to track down if this is happening or not, but there's some kind of art preserve not too far from Kenosha in a place called Sheboyan. And I've booked an, I've booked us in to go to that show. You have to make an appointment at 10 on Wednesday morning. So I hope I have something to tell you about that. Uh, it, really it might fun. be out. It's, it's artist built spaces and okay. it's quite big and it's maybe outsider art as well. Okay. Yeah. So I have not watched in treatment. How's it going? Well, it's, you know, as like with the first three seasons, as you get to know the characters uh, who are the patients and also the character who is the doctor, mm -hmm. um, you begin to, the show develops dynamics right. within those relationships. Um, and, you know, you see like... Uh, uh, you know, we what the patients don't know that we know is that uh, the psychologist, uh, Brooke, has an alcohol problem. <laughs> so after a particularly trying uh, session, mm. um, she pours herself a drink. <laughs> um, it has some... Um, it has an interesting um, recurring character in it as, as Brooke's on-again, off-again uh, boyfriend. And that's uh, Joel Kinnaman. Do you know who Joel Kinnaman is? No, I can't place him. He's a Swedish actor. He was the male co-lead in The Killing. 
Oh. Right? He had that little Van Dyke uh, yeah. goatee. Yeah, yeah. Well, he plays her on again, off again boyfriend. And it's interesting because in real life, his mom was a therapist. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's a little bit of trivia. Yeah, I, I love that. I love my, it. In my weekly research for uh-huh. uh, for the podcast. Keeping for, us for informed. The, that's right, for our, our one buttock podcast. <laughs> um, so we, we're following these patients. Uh, there's Eladio. And Eladio is a young man um, who works as a home uh, health aide for a disabled adult in a wealthy family and earns $12 an hour and is pretty messed up. Mm-hmm. And then we have Colin, um, played by John Benjamin. Oh, uh, Eladio is played by uh, Anthony Ramos. Uh, Colin is played by John Benjamin Hickey, and he's a white-collar criminal. Okay. He's basically ripped a bunch of people off, and he has to, he's, instead of getting time off for good behavior, he had extra time for bad behavior mm-hmm. um, because he was really a sore loser after getting uh, arrested. And um in order to gain his freedom or gain his parole, he has to get sign off from a psychologist. So he has to go through so many treatments right. um, in order to do that. I have a dog here who wants yes. my attention. Yes, apparently. She does, she does you not don't want any of this them. broadcasting. No, nope. and you don't feed them. You don't take them out for walks exactly. ever. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> no. no, we're doing a podcast right now. <laughs> We're doing podcasts. She's wagging her tail and looking at me like, I want something. I want wow. something right now. Wow. All right, I'm going to look um, after. Can you talk for a second while I look after the I need? can talk for a bit, I guess. Yeah, I'll try and fill it in. What I liked about the um, TV show in treatment was one of my favorite characters was played by Blair Underwood. And I loved how you really didn't know what was going to happen. It seemed like it could be super boring. And yet sometimes when they would reveal things because they're talking to a therapist, you would feel this shift. You would feel it was totally paradigm shifts. I think the first two seasons were really the best. Um, I think, I guess I prefer the um, patient storylines more than the therapist storylines. Um, I got super depressed by the Gabriel Byrne, even though I love him madly, but it was kind of depressing that he wasn't a little bit happier. I think he needed to do A Course in Miracles. I mean, I, you know, I recommend A Course in Miracles for everyone, um, if you feel that inclined, because um, you just want to find that zest for life. And poor Gabriel Byrne could never really, he was really a tormented existential guy who really didn't figure out the meaning of life. And I thought that was really disappointing. I guess I would kind of like a therapist to be a little bit more like a shaman. And that might be expecting too much. Are you back? Yes, I am back. I have finished my monologue. I've given the dogs the the, the treats that they've asked for. (laughs) So they're making all kinds of noise because you would think, would they go elsewhere to eat their treats? No. No. They have to be right at my feet to make the maximum chewing noise possible. Of course. Well, that's going to add to the dynamics of our podcast. Sound Um, effects. Okay, so are you having that kind of uh, paradigm shifts in amongst these characters where you think it's like going one way and then you find out something completely different? Well, we're starting to learn more about them. For instance, there's another character named Leila who is a rebellious teen um, living with her wealthy grandmother. And we're starting to discover that maybe there was abuse in her family. Yeah. Uh, in, through corporal punishment. And there's some um, discussion in which, you know, the therapist says, oh, were they hitting you? And she says, well, there's a difference between spanking and hitting. Okay. 
right? So we're, we're starting to learn kind of the roots of her issues. Um, but there's yeah. still a lot more to be revealed. And one of the things that is both frustrating and fantastic about, uh, about the show is that you start off with nothing and there's just conversations and there's conversations with people who want therapy to be successful to more or less degree. Right. Uh, and, um, and you also see the part of the dynamic is that, well, the, the therapist is pretty good at helping them through their problems. She's also hiding her own problems from them. Uh -oh. Right. So I think it's a, I think it's quite a good show. One of the things I like about season four is that uh, there's more people of color. Uh -huh. uh, there's first of all, Brooke, the, the doctor. There's Aladio, who is, uh, who is Latino from where I don't know. Um, there is uh, uh, Leila, who is African-American. Um, so it's more a little diversity. bit more diverse. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think that that's, that's really good and it's in a different setting but in yeah. a way it's still all it's all the same stuff right everybody has yeah, go ahead. did you ever watch the israeli version the no original? i have not no i haven't either i don't even know if it's available with subtitles or not yeah i don't know that'd be fun though yeah i that'd think so cool. i you know uh, well, I'm not sure if fun is the is the <laughs> word I use to describe this show, but no, it's, it's not fun. It is strangely, it's really hard to turn off. Yeah, it's true. Um, isn't it interesting to have that show come out so many years later? I think that's really fascinating to me. Uh, uh, and you know, I mean, obviously, it's a kind of a show that could do that because of its it's it doesn't it, it, more characters are better. Um, it's funny because. Did you ever watch Tennyson when we were talking about Prime Suspect? No, and the, I didn't. Okay, because that's her in the 60s. Well, there's also now, I, I got into something the other night. This is not like a profound TV show or anything. Like, in treatment, I think, really, you know, can tie you up and give you challenges about life. Uh, this is light entertainment. There used to be a PBS show called Miss Fisher's Murder Mystery or Murder, Murder Adventures. I mean, now there's one, Miss Fisher's Modern Mystery. And it's set, you know, the first one was set in the 20s and it's super cute because she's like a liberated woman in Australia, dresses like a flapper and dresses like an Art Nouveau and Art Deco. And now this one is set, it's her niece in the 60s in Australia. And it, it's really cute and fun. But it's, it's just funny to me that how great to be able to recreate the storyline in a different setting like that. I just think that's super cool. Yeah, and it's it's quite interesting because they're just really plugging the same formula into different people in a different uh, environment. Yeah, I guess they don't have to write the um, they don't have to write the location. They've got the location, they've got the setting, they've got the the um, structure. So then they're just creating new characters. Yeah, yeah, not a horrible idea. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I think it is kind of fun. We're we're yeah. certainly watching it. Um, although I will say that you know. I was enjoying uh, watching Hacks more. Oh, uh, but and we what's ran going out on of, with that? Well, we ran out of Hacks. We I know. Watched, we watched it all. And you watched we were, it all. We're waiting for another season. Next of it. year. Next year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I really, <laughs> I really enjoyed that show quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, 
it was. Yeah, I'm still working on it, so I love it too. Yeah, it was it was quite good, quite well well worth watching. Um, hey, something happened the other day yeah. that uh, that is sparking a comfort food diner oh, segment. Okay, and that is that our garlic scapes came up. Mm. Now the garlic scapes is like the bloom shoot of the garlic. And there's two things about okay. garlic scapes. One is that you have to cut them off your garlic plant as soon as they come up, because otherwise the plant puts its energy into yeah. its bloom instead of into the bulb. Right. And you want it to put its energy into the bulb. So you have to, that's thing number one is you, you have to cut your garlic scapes. scapes. Thing number two is that garlic scapes are quite unique and yummy. Yeah. Um, you can pickle them. Last year I tried pickled garlic scapes for the first time. They were super good. You could grill them. Um, great on the barbecue. You could chop them into a stir fry. But without even knowing that it was a thing, it turns out it is a thing. Um, I cut all these garlic scapes and I thought, I wonder if you could make garlic scape pesto. Ooh. So I took the garlic scapes and I cut them up into like quarter inch pieces. And I thought I haven't got enough garlic scapes for this pesto. Mm -hmm. So I went out and I cut as much basil I could without <laughs> discouraging the plants. Right. And I also cut some uh, fresh oregano because we have that growing and some parsley. So now I have more bulk because basically I'm looking for what else can I put in my pesto um, and so then I went to get my pine nuts and I realized I used my pine nuts last time I made pesto. So um, I know that that Sheila has a secret stash of walnuts. She likes to put walnuts on her soggies in the morning. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and I borrowed some of her walnuts and, and it, it did come with a warning about those are my walnuts and <laughs> you better not let me run out. So I added walnuts and of course i made the pesto in the normal way that is with a mortar and pestle mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and in my little brain i think <laughs> that pest the love won't come out of pesto unless it's pounded with a mortar and, and, and pestle okay. i think if you use it in a food processor you get something that's kind of like pesto and i'm not saying it's not good i'm sure it's perfectly good but i can't <laughs> bring myself to use a food. Well, I don't like food processors for anything, just for right. starts. Like if I have a choice, food processor or no food processor, I go without the food processor. And right. so we, we own one of those things, which lives in a cupboard in the basement somewhere. And it, there might be something we really needed for every two years or something. Normally we don't use it. So my mortar and pestle gets a lot more use. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's what I used to make my garlic scape pesto. So I used um, kosher salt to help with the grinding process. Okay. Because of its texture. Yeah. And the garlic scapes and the other herbs from the garden and the walnuts. And then did I have Parmigiano Reggiano cheese in the fridge? No. no. But I did have some Grana Padano cheese. I, don't I know thought, okay, is. it's a it's another less she she um, hard Italian cheese. Is it less she she or is it a different flavor? It's a slightly different flavor, but it's in the same class okay. of flavors. I'm going right. to say okay. now there's going to be some 
aficionados of Italian cooking who are going to say, no, they're nothing like one another. <laughs> but, you know, they're in that class of like um, hard, yummy uh, uh, Italian. Cheese. I think you've definitely gone off the roadmap with this pesto anyway. So I don't think we're worried about that. <laughs> right. So, and I'm using Salas Gold olive oil. Oh, nice. Also mixed in uh, as I as I pound it. Um, right. And, and so I got about, finally, I guess I got maybe two cups of pesto. And about half of that immediately- That's a lot. Yeah, we didn't do bad. Um, half of it immediately got gobbled by Sheila and I with uh, Melba toasts, <laughs> pesto on Melba toasts. Um, which are an excellent pesto carrier. Um, it was really, really good. advice. So then, and then what did you make some pasta? Well, no, I didn't make pasta, but oh. I, I had some chicken thighs in the fridge. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's delicious. And I thought, I'm going to make some chicken thighs tonight. Yeah. I wonder how I can use this pesto in my dinner. And then I realized I can take pesto and I can rub it all over. First, <laughs> I, each chicken thigh, I put two cuts in the top. Okay. So there's more area to rub into right, and I right, rubbed right. all that pesto goodness <laughs> into every nook and cranny of my uh, chicken thighs. So you infused them. You could say that. <laughs> and then I took some uh, mushrooms of the white button mushroom variety, uh -huh. also known as Loblaws mushrooms or right. whatever. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I just cleaned those up a little bit and I rubbed those with the same pesto and I put them all, the mushrooms and the, uh, the chicken thighs into a cast iron pan and put it in the oven 400 degrees Fahrenheit for probably about 55 minutes and it was super yummy. It sounds really good. It, it was really just, good. it was really, really <laughs> yummy. That's all I could say. I love it. Now, when I make pesto, I like to do three different textures. I like to slice some of the leaves, just slice them. Okay. The basil. Then I also use a grinding machine and I also use a, uh, a grinding tool because that way you've got all the leaves at different sizes. I don't like chunks of pesto. I want some of it to be ground. I want some of it to still maintain a pine nut here and there. So I like all the sizes of the ingredients. Okay. <laughs> so I'd mash the garlic and I'd also um, chop it. So you just get different bites and layers of the flavor. Just, yes. And of yeah. course, I didn't put in garlic cloves in this pesto since it had the garlic scapes. Do they taste like garlic? Oh, yeah. Very oh, strong garlic. Cool. Wow. Wow. Um, All right. They take a lot more pounding than basil if you're making pesto. You have to really, you have to really uh, grind and hammer and <laughs> work it. Work it. I, I don't even it. know where I would find those. Like in their habitat in a grocery store. <laughs> oh, well, mostly you won't find garlic right. scapes in a grocery store, but you might find them at like a farmer's market. Okay. Where the garlic farmers will, will come in and cut their scapes and they'll come in and sell their scapes. And some people will buy them as really a delicacy. Yeah. You know, for us, because we grow some garlic every year, all the scapes come up and usually within a few days of one another. Right. Um, and I have to cut them anyway. So I always look yeah. for some way of, 
of using them. And now we wait. It'll be about, I would say, a little over a month, maybe a month and a week from now. Um, we're going to have uh, our garlic ready. Yummy. Perfect. Usually it's about the second, third week Perfect. of July. Yeah, um, I don't think my zucchini is going to make it. No? No, I think it needed a bigger pot. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, as the zucchini, the great zucchini experiment. <laughs> and, you know, it's not the end of the world. No. Some things that you planted will make it. Yes. Yes. Some will make it. The um, other... I... Go ahead. Uh, the other day, uh, my friend Ted came over for some social distanced um, music playing on the back uh -huh. deck, and uh, I, I sent him off with a, a bag of uh, lettuce and herbs. Nice, and stuff the nice. Because it's now it's all starting to get big faster than I can eat it. Uh, I love that. That's so great. But I can't get any because the sparrows are eating it all. So that's well, they've got to make a living too. They do. They have to make a living. So I've done my my um, the neighbors are giving them rice and bread. So I figure which I'm so against, but what am I going to do? I'm just going to ignore it, right? Um, and so I'm going to just uh, hope that the lettuce will save their lives. <laughs> <laughs> please don't okay. feed Please don't feed birds rice and bread. Yeah, it's not a very good idea. But I'm not going to get it up with it with our neighbors because um, some of our neighbors have been getting up at it with each other. Oh, yeah? A little, a little confrontation. They don't yeah, know probably, rule number six. No, they don't know. You can teach them six. rule number six. Yeah. Okay. Better remember that. All right. I'll write hey, that down. Oh, first of all, thank you for listening. Yes. If you got a bone to pick with us, or if you just want to tell us we're swell, you can contact us <laughs> at theagency.podcast uh, at gmail.com. And of course, I've been kicked out of that email. I can no longer access it. Okay, uh, I'll fix it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did anyone uh, email us this week, Candy? No, I meant to check. I, I'm just so behind. I didn't even get to that. I could check right now, maybe. I think you better check because I'll try. If, if you don't check, there'll be an important email for and us. And we will totally regret it. I know. Yes. So let me just do a really right. quick look here. And uh, let's see. When I try to so go So sad in. that I'm sitting here hoping that there's an email from somebody. There when, is not. When I go in and try to access it, um, it doesn't believe, it doesn't trust me. And so it tells me that it's going to text me. If I want, it could text me a code. Well, it texts the code to Candy's phone. Well, it didn't text it to me. I didn't receive that. And second of all, uh, I think the issue is if I'm there, it's not going to let me in. It's, it's doing something where it's reading, it's only letting certain devices in. And that's defeating the whole purpose of the internet. That's not what the internet's for, is to control our device access to things. Um, it shouldn't prevent Damn me. internet mandarins. I know. I should be able to check this when I'm in Toronto. Yeah, I hope you can. Yeah, I hope well, I can. Well, you can, you can certainly reset it because you can ask it to send a code to yourself, and then it'll trust whatever device you're on. Yeah, I guess we can do that. We'll oh, have think, to do that. I think that's going to be okay. Right. But, however, it did not send a code to my phone. So, you know, I would have texted it to you. Yes, but the code, I, I didn't send the, I didn't ask it to send the code because I oh. thought if you get a code that doesn't, you, there's no reason why you would know what this code was about. I would have sent so you a code. Right, and I'll so, just forward it to you. I'll just forward it to you. So 
But I there's think a time next, limit on the codes. I know. So next time, say, I'm going to check my email. We'll do that after this podcast. We won't bore our listeners with this. Um, what you're going to do is you're going to go check your email, and I'll sit by my phone and immediately tell you the code. Uh, okay. okay. And All that'll right. be good until next time. That's right. No, then you're, we're going to have to look at the settings to see why why it did that. Okay. I thought you already All did right. that. I did, but I didn't do it just now. Just call us the Bickersons. I know, right? Okay. We'll figure it out. And, uh, so please email us so that Eugene can't read it. <laughs> <laughs> the agency.podcast at gmail.com. And thank you very much for listening. And we'll be back at you next week. See Bye. You.